BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to The Josh Hammer Show. Coming to you soon, we've got my good friend Jason Rance of KTTH Seattle, frequent Fox News guest, and of course, most important from my perspective, a frequent columnist for Newsweek. Going to get into issues both foreign and domestic. But first, let's kind of stick with what's happening in the foreign sphere. This was, this was of course, the topic of our entire podcast. It was a special episode on Russia and Ukraine last week, in case you missed it. This, obvi- this story is not going away anytime soon, it seems. I, I, I honestly, I, a bit of an egg on my face. I kind of thought that we would be looking at a possible ceasefire, a possible deal as early as kind of this week. I guess we'll see what happens between now and our next podcast recording. The absolute latest, I saw some tweets coming in across my feed this morning saying that Moscow is offering a deal of sorts to Ukraine where effectively Ukraine would formally cede Crimea and the Donbass and various regions there in eastern Ukraine. And they would also formally take their possible ascension to NATO off the table in exchange for um, for peace. Obviously, that's if you take the Kremlin and Putin at their word, which obviously is a dicey proposition. But that's kind of the latest. So there is no ceasefire right now. But there's there's so many aspects and so many kind of elements of this story. It's, it's, it kind of seems to change on almost a, almost a daily basis here. I guess kind of the biggest change, really, in my perspective, and it's not that my kind of first principles, my, first, my 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 real approach to this, none of that has changed since day one. Since day one, my approach to this has been exactly the same. I've written multiple columns on this. We did a podcast special. We've obviously done a lot of content on this. Vladimir Putin's war of aggression is wrong, period. There are innocents dying. There is a massive humanitarian crisis. There is a massive refugee crisis, the biggest refugee crisis in the European continent in decades. Obviously, this is the first kind of all-out war in Europe, probably since World War II. There have obviously been some other kind of um, intermittent conflicts here or there. But all of this is ultimately Putin's fault, okay? He is the aggressor here. He is the one who started this. But the situation is fundamentally more complex and more nuanced than that, which was the entire point of the column that I wrote last week, which seemed to kind of trigger a lot of people from kind of the neocon, I wouldn't even call neocons far right, but I mean, for simplistic purposes, we can say the quote unquote neocon right to kind of the quote unquote um, uh, anti-Russia left. I mean, I don't even know how you would describe kind of the folks are taking on kind of a mega hawkish stance from a kind of liberal perspective nowadays. But the point here is that Ukraine is it's a complex country, people. You, it is It is simply not this bastion of kind of United States-style liberal democracy. And this notion that this, like, this at Ukraine blue check Twitter account, they're sending out these ridiculous kind of uh, crisply edited videos, kind of highlighting kind of Western support, all the leaders kind of rallying to Ukraine's cause. I have no reason to believe whatsoever that that Twitter account in particular is being run from Ukraine. It would not surprise me in the slightest if this thing were being run from Cambridge, Massachusetts, or somewhere inside the Beltway in D.C., from some Ivy League graduate on some kind of like Soros or Koch-funded scholarship. I mean, that's like seriously what would probably surprise me the least at this point. I guess Soros in particular 
you kind of got to think that he has his kind of his footprints over all this. But the point here is that as recently as 2014, okay, this was the second Obama administration. This is the second Obama term. This was really not that long ago. In 2014, the pro-Russia president at the time was deposed in what we would refer to as a color revolution, kind of a, a post-Soviet kind of style transfer of power. And this color revolution in 2014, the Maidan revolution in Ukraine happened it was funded in no small part by kind of Western European and American money. And ever since then, there's just been a tremendous kind of influence operation of all sorts of kind of money laundering activities on the ground in Ukraine. My good friend, Dave Riaboy on his Substack, he calls the Substack Late Republic Nonsense. I would encourage listeners to check it out. He referred to, to this in a recent post as the quote unquote NGO archipelago. NGO, of course, stands for non-governmental organizations. And the point is that ever since kind of 2014, when a ton of money flooded in to kind of lure Ukraine out of Russia's sphere of influence and bring them closer and closer to kind of the EU, closer and closer to NATO, closer and closer to the US, there has been a lot of kind of American, kind of Western European money and infrastructure investment in Ukraine. Um, All sorts of kind of mega Ukrainian donors have heavily funded the Clinton Foundation. I mean, lest we forget, guys, it was not that long ago that Hunter Biden and Burisma, a a Ukrainian company, were kind of ground zero of one of kind of the great corruption scandals in in modern um, American history. This was not that long ago here. But it seems to me that what's happening here, and I, I see all these people on Twitter putting the Ukrainian flags in their Twitter sphere. I mean, in here in Miami, where I live, all the skyscrapers are lit up in blue and yellow. We're seeing this kind of global movement here. And I, Putin is wrong. Putin is a thug. He grew up in the KGB. He harbors an anti-American sentiment from his Cold War days. He, he, he is a thug, and he, you can call him brilliant, you can call him a madman, but, I mean, he's definitely not necessarily the most rational actor in the world as far as kind of his genuine kind of evil tendencies. He poisons and murders enemies. He's a bad dude, okay? He's a bad hombre, as former President Donald Trump, I think, would would put it. But Ukraine is not the cause to die for, okay? I think what what I'm seeing kind of ginned up and kind of the beating of the war drums when I see kind of the archest of arch neocons, people like Lindsey Graham literally tweet for Putin's assassination, Adam Kinzinger calling for a no-fly zone, for goodness sake. People, a no-fly zone, I realize this is like an easy talking point. It kind of makes you sound cool, right? It makes you sound like you understand like military jargon. You call for a no-fly zone. Think about what a no-fly zone is, okay? You're calling for a no-fly zone. What that means is that you are in instructing the United States, NATO, or whoever you are kind of tasking with enforcing the no-fly zone with, in this instance, with shooting down Russian planes, okay? Russia has thousands, thousands of nuclear weapons. Now, those are aging. They are kind of um, rusty nuclear weapons. This is a an, an old arsenal, which I really built up during the Soviet War, which, or excuse me, during the Cold War. The Soviet Union's collapse, of course, being three plus decades ago at this point. But the point is that Russia is not a, it is not an enemy that you necessarily want to provoke at, at all costs here. So we should be kind of, we obviously should be standing with Ukraine insofar as they are the ones who are being bombed, their, their civilians are being killed here. 
But it is crucial, it is imperative that Americans not get duped into fighting a land war on the European continent at a time when China's rise is the number one threat, period, bar none, end of story. The time is not now to divert your attention to the European continent. And I understand why people want to look at this conflict. It is terrible. These images are horrific. Innocent people are dying. We cannot look away. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, if we can just kind of say a very unpolitically correct kind of crass thing, I think a lot of white Americans look at what's happening there. They see white people fighting white people. Perhaps maybe they even care a little more than kind of the various kind of internecine Arab conflicts in the Middle East or something like that. But the point here is support Ukraine, fine, but your virtue signaling cause is not going to go, it's not going to take you very far. This is not World War III. Putin is not Hitler. Temper your hot takes accordingly kind of that is where I come down on this. So stay with us. We'll take it to a quick break on the other side. As promised, my friend Jason Rance of KTTH Seattle will be joining us. Stay with us. So welcome back. We've got my friend Jason Rance with us today. Jason's the host of the Jason Rance Show at KTTH Seattle, frequent Fox News guest, and most important, at least from my vantage point, a frequent Newsweek columnist. So Jason, my friend, welcome to the Josh Hammer Show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you bet, man. Yeah, no, I've been on your show God knows how many times over the years, so grateful to finally repay the favor, of course. But let's kind of dive right in here because we're recording this, obviously, in the midst of what is really the first war on the European continent, really kind of in earnest. I mean, you, you could argue, obviously, kind of the bombing of Sarajevo and Bosnia back in the Clinton administration, but really in earnest since World War II. Um, kind of just talk me through, Jason, from from your vantage point, from the, from the vantage point of a conservative. There's been so much disinformation. There's been so much kind of competing narratives out there. Kind of just walk us through how you're viewing this conflict playing out over there. I mean, I don't have a, a hot take on this. I think most people who see what's going on are disgusted. They don't want to see Vladimir Putin n- not merely kill these innocent civilians. They don't want to see him get any more power. Yet at the exact same time, I think there is a general disinterest in the United States getting involved in any meaningful way. The same way I think there's a general disinterest in the Europeans from getting involved. There's always the potential that Putin doesn't stop at Ukraine, although, you know, to be clear, he either uh, Putin either vastly underestimated the Ukrainian spirit or the, you know, the military prowess of the Russians is nowhere near what people thought it would be. It, it's obvious that if you just lob a whole bunch of missiles, you would end this rather quickly in Ukraine, which is, of course, always a, a concern. And it seems to me that that Putin doesn't want to just completely um, demolish the country. He wants the infrastructure. And so that's probably holding him back. But still, Ukrainian people have been pushing back in a significant way. I just don't think folks want us to get involved. And I do wonder whether or not the wall-to-wall coverage on pretty much all of the networks might end up backfiring a little bit in that, you know, the average American right now are they're, they're feeling a lot of pain, not just pain at the pump, which I know the Biden administration is pretending is all due to Putin all of a sudden. But they're seeing the crime surge not going away. They're seeing homelessness continue. They're seeing drug overdose fatalities increase. And there's issues here at home that are really, really important that I just hope people don't forget about covering. 
that's kind of the exact tension actually that I want to kind of tease out with you because I, I, I maybe we kind of live in like an overly black pilled kind of silo of sorts, like people like you and me, but it does seem like we're having a lot of problems on the home front, obviously. I mean, we just went through a massive kind of supply chain crisis with, you know, uh, people working on the docks and the ports, but unable to kind of unload the shipments and the truckers with the vaxes. Inflation, obviously, at four decade highs. I mean, we're facing a lot of problems here to say nothing, obviously, of our own border with Mexico, which I realize has become something of kind of like a punchline. But it's actually like a very real problem. It's a very real concern. Anyone who has been anywhere near that border could tell you there. So I, I, I guess I find it curious, honestly, that kind of our media is, is paying so much attention to what's happening over there. And that's not to say that what's happening there is not terrible. There was a there was a horrific humanitarian refugee crisis. There are cities being bombed, civilians being killed. It is bloody and it is, and it is disgusting. But at the same time, I mean, am I too cynical for like thinking that a lot of this is kind of like a manufactured attempt to make people look abroad to take away from the Biden administration, the Democratic Party's woes at home? Does that make sense? It makes sense. I don't necessarily agree with that, at least in some instances. I, I think there are clear examples if you look at CNN and MSNBC and how they're covering this and the, the way that they're framing this and how they're treating Joe Biden. I think there's very much of what you just said. There's some uh, sort of attention on the global stage. They're trying to prop up Joe Biden while also giving him an excuse for the rising gas prices. But at the same time, you know, I understand why news outlets want to cover what's going on it is a war there's lots yeah. of of drama associated with war tragedy associated with war and people are interested in getting more information and let's be clear most people don't know anything about ukraine or russia frankly in this country um and, and now they're learning more and so i do think that there's interest but i just i don't get the sense that people here in the united states are interested enough to the point where we completely ignore, in some instances, some of the real issues that we're facing. And I know that a lot of folks on the left, especially amongst the activist crowd and politicians, they like what's going on right now as a, not just a distraction, but it allows them to do what they love doing, which is just virtue signal. You've got a bunch of people who are going out there changing their you know, Twitter avatars to the Ukrainian flag. They have no idea where Ukraine even is, and they never talked about it before. <laughs> Right now, but they love to be able to do that while completely ignoring some of the issues at home that they are responsible for. Because I can tell you from here in Seattle last week, we, it was in under a week on one stretch of downtown Seattle, one block but on third between Pike and Pine. This is in the core of downtown Seattle. This is a 60 second walk to Pike Place Market, which most people know about. We saw two gun homicides. We saw three stabbings and we saw a carjacking all under five days and no one here is paying as close attention to ukraine as they maybe otherwise would if there wasn't this kind of surge in crime on the ground and i just think that they are trying to get some of the local information on the stuff that impacts them directly while still paying attention to what's going on globally i just think we have to do a little bit better job at sort of speaking to both of those concerns Totally. I mean, it seems like the conversations that I mean, I have with friends here, both inside and outside of kind of our bubble of conservative media. I, I mean, the domestic issues that all of us were talking about like a month and a half, two months ago have not gone away, obviously. I mean, it's not like critical race theory has just disappeared. It's not like this crisis at the southern border is going away anytime soon. 
I, to, to the issue that you just raised, I mean, it's not like this massive, horrible, horrific spike in homicide and other violent crimes. I mean, it's not like that's going down anytime soon. But let's kind of stick with the foreign policy just for a little bit more here, because, you know, the context of, of what's going on, the broader context and kind of the thing that we try to focus on in this show is kind of what's happening in conservatism and how like conservatives and ultimately like the Republican Party should be thinking about everything that happened in Trump administration, kind of where we go from here. As it pertains to NATO, which, of course, is kind of in the crosshairs, obviously, of everything happening with Russia. Trump obviously kind of told our NATO allies, basically put up or shut up. I mean, he basically said, get your military spending as a percentage of GDP up to 2% as NATO requires and don't necessarily expect America to just come to your rescue every single time. But it, it, it just seems to me like nonetheless, like this, we've kind of seen like the rise of kind of like an old school, like ultra hawkish instinct from a lot of Republican politicians nonetheless here. How do you see kind of the future of Republican and I guess just conservative foreign policy thinking playing out, kind of channeling through the lens of what we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia? I mean, I imagine what we're seeing on the national stage just with with the way national Republican figures are reacting to this is similar to how the conservative base is kind of reacting in that you've got different folks within the movement who hold completely different positions, maybe in conflict with one another, maybe complementary to a point, trying to figure it out as well. Because at the end of the day, conservatives and just humanity in general wants to see what's good and peaceful for the globe. We don't like to see innocent civilians killed. But at the same time, we've got that inner conflict of well, we don't want to see Americans killed and we don't want to send Americans to war with a nuclear powerhouse, uh, you know, needlessly. And so I think that conservatives especially have that inner conflict of wanting to help, but not wanting to make the situation worse. You clearly have the war hawks within the Republican Party who are eager to go to war. I think Lindsey Graham has been speaking out in pretty remarkably irresponsible way. Same with, with Adam Kinzinger, who, who seemed to want to push us into World War III, which I think the natural instinct of a conservative would be to push back against that, not wanting to see that, but also not wanting to be completely hands off. So I think there's there's room for the majority of conservatives to live where they're not hardcore into the Lindsey Graham, Adam Kinzinger approach to this versus the completely hands off kind of you know traditionally Rand Paul view of foreign policy. I, I think, you know, the, the two words that is kind of uh, annoying and almost like a cheat when having a debate about getting involved in anything, which is it depends. It depends on the conflict. It depends on where we see the conflict going and how it might actually impact us. And, you know, Republicans just want to generally not get involved unless they have to in these kinds of foreign affairs. But, uh, you know, there, there very clearly is a debate going on within the party within just the voting base. And I don't think that there's any flat consensus beyond that that sort of conflict of wanting to know where ultimately everyone is comfortable going. No, I, I, I agree with everything you just said, honestly. I think that's extremely well said. And it's thorny because I agree insofar as our foreign policy thinking should be between the two extremes of, you know, on the one hand, Lindsey Graham effectively calling for World War III in terms of calling for Putin's assassination. And on the other hand, this extremely ideological, reflexive isolationism at all costs. I mean, like there is a prudential, pragmatic America first, American national interest middle ground here. We're going to take it to a very quick break. We're joined again by Jason Rance. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Jason, let's shift a little more to the domestic sphere. Is this kind of your area more, at least in terms of your columns for us at Newsweek, which are obviously excellent columns. We encourage all the listeners of this podcast to check out all of our columns at newsweek.com slash opinion. Jason, what are kind of the top two or three domestic issues that you think are most ripe for the tank, for the taking this fall insofar as kind of the Republicans' opportunities to take the House and Senate back from the, from the Democrats? I, I think the two, certainly the two biggies are crime and culture issues within schools. I think depending on where our energy policy goes, so long as you don't you know debate it in terms of here's our energy policy, just talk about why gas prices are up and cost of living is up, inflation uh, through the roof. I, I think those are the biggies. And I think that if Republicans continue to be reasonable on all of these issues, it's going to translate into, to, to, to borrow my, my favorite words from President Obama, a shellacking in the midterms. I, I think when you come out there and you put on clear display the left's view on the criminal justice system and the rights, the right will always come up on top, not merely because I support it, but because it's just more reasonable. You, you've got leftists who believe that we should not be putting people in jail, including very violent criminals. I think there used to be a part of the Republican base that wanted everyone to go to jail for any slight against uh, the, the law. And I think that the thinking there has evolved tremendously to the point where I do think it is just inherently reasonable that we say, hey, we don't want to throw that kid in jail for stealing a candy bar at the 7-Eleven, but if that kid is bringing a gun and holding up that 7-Eleven, yeah, at that point, we should not be talking about restorative justice. Unfortunately, the Democrats are only talking about restorative justice. They're talking about abolishing police and prisons, and you know, they every, every once in a while, they try to frame it around, well, we actually just want to live in a world in which prisons will never exist, except they are pretending that world is happening right now, that that is a reality right now. And as a result, they're releasing criminals from any sort of consequence and those criminals just keep recommitting acts of, of violence or other forms of criminality on the other hand you've got the clear issue of education that generally plays well for republicans i think the the one benefit in what was you know two years filled with a, a lack of benefits of this remote learning scenarios parents actually heard what was being taught in the classroom and they got a better sense of how political it was getting. And there is no one, including Democrats as a whole, who like to hear the language of this country being fundamentally evil, built on, on white supremacy that must be dismantled because they're systems of oppression. People don't want to hear that. And they certainly don't want to hear that all white people are evil and that a white kid is an oppressor and the black kids are oppressed. We as, a, as an American people wholly reject that thinking. And when you bring it in front of kids, it just takes it to a different level. We as an adult can hear that nonsense and push it aside. But when you're getting it in front of kids and we know that kids don't have a worldview, they don't have a lifetime of experience, they are in positions where the person in charge is indoctrinating them with this stuff, parents end up getting really passionate. And what we've seen across the country, not just in Virginia, but what we've seen across the country are parents, conservative and liberal and everything in between saying, okay, this goes too far. And they're going to turn to the party that's saying that because one side isn't saying that one side is telling us that you're crazy for pushing back against CRT. Well, first they said CRT doesn't exist. And then they said, well, you're crazy for pushing back against it. This is just true history, but it's not. And we're smart enough to figure that out. Yeah, totally. And I think the only thing that I would 
add to that is the indoctrination and critical race theory, which has you know been so well documented by our friend and your Pacific Northwest neighbor, Chris Rufo, among others, really is proliferating. And it, it quite literally has shown its potential at the ballot box to be a driving force. We saw that, of course, in Virginia um, with the gubernatorial. San Francisco. San, San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. With, yeah, with the school board recall there. I mean, we've seen it over and over again, of course. You know, I guess the only, the only thing I'd add is it seems like gender ideology and the transgender issue if republicans actually had the courage to run on it could which obviously is very much an open question that that, that has serious potential as well i mean you know abigail schreier has shown her Substack over the past few months over and over again kind of how middle school and high school teachers are kind of encouraging their students to like not talk with their parents to kind of hide from them what they're being taught it's it, it's kind of, it's kind of the same paradigm it's the same idea that parents should be more involved over their education it kind of applies to, to both ends but well, and that's the, by the way, that's what I mean by the cultural issues surrounding the schools, because, you know, look, look it depends on where you live, whether or not any of these issues specifically right. will work. Right. So in San Francisco, although to be fair, I would have said probably this would not work in San Francisco. But, it, you know, San Francisco is a good case study of even the left saying, OK, you guys are going too, too far. We're going <laughs> to have to course correct here. And you're seeing a little bit of that, at least on the criminal side in Seattle. So we've been getting some good case studies, but you know, I generally agree. It just it depends on where you live, and the issues on the ground might not be even anywhere near the transgender rights debate. And so I wouldn't necessarily right. jump into that in a city or a county in which that hasn't really come up. I, you know, at the end of the day, all of these they're local politics are won on the local level, and so you have to hit at what's happening on the local level. I would argue there's more of the CRT stuff. I think happening versus the transgender stuff. But where it happens, I think you're right. When we shine a spotlight on it, 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 it trends in our favor. Yeah, no, totally right. And as far as like the national issues go, I mean, inflation is obviously hitting everyone. I mean, it makes sense to kind of hammer home, like drill more, you know, drill, baby, drill, frack, 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 that kind of stuff. But kind of sticking on the quote unquote cultural stuff, Jason, why can't Republicans actually run on cultural issues like why do they just repeatedly shy away from this i mean we've seen time and time again you just mentioned san francisco and i was mentioning virginia we've seen time and time again that running on the quote-unquote cultural issues and by the way i think effectively every issue in america in the year 2022 might as well be a quote-unquote social or a quote-unquote cultural issue like why can't Republicans run on this? I mean, I, I saw like Kevin McCarthy like a few weeks ago released like kind of like kind of he released like a five point kind of t- tweet of some sort. And none of it was anything remotely in this space. Uh, why can't Republicans just do what has to be done and actually take these issues head on? So I think there's a few reasons. Number one, for, from the cultural lens, conservatives are branded poorly. In large part because number one, liberal elites in the media have defined what the culture is. I mean, when you think about what culture is, you look towards entertainment, you look towards, uh, you certainly used to look towards the late night comedy shows and you look towards entertainment magazines and the, you know, the television shows, and they've really defined conservative cultural values as prudish and overall negative. I think number two, conservative played into that. I remember the Parents Television Council doing things, trying to get everything taken off the air, really leading the way on cancel culture back then in ways that I do think were against the mainstream. And so you have those two trends or two tactics, I guess, happening at the exact same time, which I think weakened the conservative cultural arguments. I think 
conservatives have taken it back because now you've seen the role reversal, all the cancel culture for the most part. It's coming from the left. You see these elitists in media who are trying to define the culture as being very, very outside of not just the mainstream of America, but they just don't know what it's like being the average citizen. They have really leaned into their celebrity and their wealth, and they're no longer relating to everyone the way that I think conservatives are leaning into it and relating. So I think there's been a role reversal, and I think ultimately that is going to change. But again, part of the reason why I suspect on a national level, you're not seeing the kind of cultural arguments that you might expect is because on the local level, it depends on where you live as to whether or not that is the biggest issue. A cultural argument in the deep South that's already conservative or any region that's already conservative is not going to get you as much as going after inflation. Right. That's that's one of those issues that I think is going to connect more with those folks. And so that's an issue that connects more with everybody. So why not lean into that? Crime is the exact same way because we've seen these these policies around uh, left-wing policies around the criminal justice system seep into cities and counties that you wouldn't expect it to. And, and I think that that's why they're leaning into that. And there's probably, again, there's probably a little bit of a fear factor in how the national media will approach these cultural issues. So when you have pure examples of culture issues in the classroom going awry or you know within the transgender move, whatever it is, Okay, highlight those. You make a big deal out of it. But when you talk about it in the abstract, I think it it brings on this fear from the national leaders that it's not going to be framed in an honest way and will just make conservatives look like they're the ones out of touch, even though we're clearly not. We're clearly not. I would obviously agree with that, although I, th- I think you and I are a little biased. But I mean, it certainly seems to me like we're not based on the, any of the conversations that I have just with kind of local people here in Miami, just with all the people I talk to when I travel to give talks and canvases and things of that nature. But in our meantime, let's take it away from the national and kind of bring it more to the personal or, or the local here. So I'm actually flying to San Francisco next week. I haven't been back to the Bay Area in probably over a decade. Um, I'm kind of bracing myself for what I'm going to see, to be honest with you, as far as just everything that I've heard about, like the homeless situation, the needles and everything. I mean, you're a West Coast guy. I mean, you know, you've reported, uh, you've done outstanding reporting, obviously, and everything wrong happening in Seattle. How bad is it in these West Coast metropolises for people who kind of live in the Midwest or on the East Coast who just don't get out to see it? And how how did it get to be this terrible? I mean, like the West Coast, obviously, uh, the, these big cities in particular, they've always had kind of a liberal bent, but it really just seems like over the past 10 years, it's kind of reached a new low from what I can tell. So let me start with the, the second part first. The reason why it's gotten so bad is because the people in charge are ideologues. And when you're an ideologue, you are blinded to the results of your own policies. And you can always justify why things are as bad as they are with a simple, well, it's because I haven't been able to do what I truly want to do. I haven't gone far enough to my politics to really go after the root cause. You have been indoctrinated into believing corporations are all evil and they're the reasons for all this. And when you do that, you tend to make the situation worse. And when you've got voters who, you know, who are already susceptible to like white guilt, you put the guilt on them of being responsible for homelessness, their policies, they will also try to lean into what they argue is compassionate and just want to get more extreme into their ideology. This is an issue that Republicans would face too if they held deeply 
flawed views on housing. Thankfully, they don't, which is why you're not seeing the homelessness crisis hit these conservative cities the same way you're seeing it in a Seattle, San Francisco, LA, New York. And I, I think that's why things are so bad is because people don't want to admit that they're the problem and thus they're never going to truly course correct. And unless there's some significant cultural shift, which like we've been saying, you, you've started to see, including on this issue in Seattle, a, a little bit in the Bay Area and certainly you started to see it in New York and L.A. It, it's going to take a long time, however, to fix. And, you know, there's some people want to pretend that things are not that bad. And they'll point to a neighborhood, for example, in Seattle that is not really touched by homelessness. But that's not the norm. And that's not what we should expect that, you know, our downtown cores of these major cities are just hellscapes. You, you should not expect that. And yet there is this weird movement to say, well, of course, we're going to have that there. Every city goes through these problems. No, they really don't. Not to this extent. And for people who don't believe things are as bad as we say they are and maybe think that, you know, when I go out, I'm selectively editing photos out and only including the ones on Twitter that show the, the despair. Go to any downtown core of any major uh, city in this country that's run by a Democrat. And then go to any of the major cities, the downtown cores of conservative run cities. You don't see this in San Diego or Cleveland. You do see this or in Miami, where I live. Yeah, or Miami. You don't see it. And, you know, Florida is kind of a weird place because even some of your Democrats there are kind of moderate in the grand scheme of things. I, I know Tampa, for example, is run by a, a, a Democrat, but they're doing it right. So when you don't lean in, it's, it's not even inherently political. It's ideological in, in that. If you have a stubborn adherence, almost like you're in a member of a, you're a member of a cult to one ideology, you're going to ruin things. Democrats can run cities the same way Republicans can run and Republicans can run cities into the ground the same way as Democrats can. It's a matter of how how loyal you are to an ideology that is showing itself to not work in the individual circumstance you find yourself in. So just go to any of these cities and tell me what you find and, and tell me you think that's OK. Tell me you think it's compassionate to leave people living out on the streets. I, this weekend, I went to the uh, Third Avenue between Pike and Pine because of all the crime. And there's this new emphasis patrol that not all what it cracks up to be. But I was just walking and filming and seeing people smoking, mostly fentanyl, just out in the open. These people will be dead in a few months and no one here seems to care. Wow. They think it lacks compassion to sweep any of these places. It lacks compassion to enforce the law because it wouldn't, we, we wouldn't want to stigmatize people who are addicts. But with respect, we should want to stigmatize the addiction. You don't have to stigmatize the people, but you do have to have some compassion for them. And that means doing things that they're unwilling to do, which is force them into sobriety, basically. Get them into jail where they will very quickly. It, won't, it will not be fun. But it will get them off of those drugs if they're saying no constantly to our offers of help. And they're, you know, when you're addicts, <laughs> they're not going to just say, oh, OK, yes, you're right. I'm addicted. Sign me up. That, that's just not how it works. Yeah, it seems like time and time again, the progressive leftist instinct to help so often just backfires, right? I mean, this is kind of the entire recurring theme, the leitmotif, if you will, of Thomas Sowell's life work. I mean, Jason Riley, of course, with the Manhattan Institute, um, he, has, he has written time and time again. If I recall, his book was, was literally entitled Stop Helping Us, I think was the title of his book. So, I mean, whether it's kind of the welfare state or whether it's um, the homeless issue in particular, which is one that I know you've covered time and time again, it just seems like the leftist instinct to help so often really just ends up undermining their own putative cause. But 
Jason, we're unfortunately going to have to end it on that note. Thank you so much for joining us, obviously. Where can listeners find you if they want more? So go wherever it is you downloaded this podcast and just search Jason Rantz Show and my show will pop up. Hit the subscribe button. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter under Jason Rantz. And we cannot recommend you doing both of those things more strongly. So Jason, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So that was Jason Rance of KTTH Seattle. So Jason is a frequent columnist for us at Newsweek. I really encourage you to kind of check out everything that he writes there and his radio show and his commentary on Fox News are, of course, always can miss. He really has dedicated, I think, a lot of ink and a lot of kind of airtime over the past few years to kind of diving into the homelessness issue in Seattle in particular, because that's where he's based, of course, and just trying to kind of dive in and figure out why this is proliferating and why it's not getting any better there. And he's obviously tied it into kind of the rise of the violent crime in Seattle and other kind of Democrat-run cities in particular. Seattle, of course, if you recall, kind of in the early days of kind of the post-George Floyd riots, um, the 1619 riots, if you will, to borrow a phrase from the Claremont Institute's uh, Charles Kessler, it was kind of, what was it called? It was called CHOP, the Capitol Hill Occupied, or whatever the heck it was called. Oh, it was CHAZ, I mean, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. I think they had like CHAZ and CHOP. I mean, who, I mean, who can keep these acronyms straight with kind of this leftist insanity? But Jason did like a lot of live reporting from there, kind of just showing what like genuine anarchy in America and kind of these urban liberal enclaves actually looks like there. And, you know, as someone who fairly recently moved to Miami, and hard to believe it's been about six, six and a half months ago at this point now, but our, I, I live in Miami proper, and our mayor here, Francis Suarez, is is Republican. Um, he, he he is a moderate Republican, but he is a Republican, and we, we we do live here in one of the fairly few, very large, prominent American cities at this point, where we have a Republican mayor. Um, I I don't actually know who the current mayor of maybe like Oklahoma City or Fort Worth, Texas, some of these other kind of historically conservative leading large cities are concerned. But certainly here in in Miami, in kind of the heart of Cuban America, so to speak, we certainly do have our Cuban American Republican mayor. And you know, I got lunch with him shortly after I moved here, way back in September, with Mayor Suarez. That is, and you know, one of the things that stood out from my conversation was the extent to which he really is kind of focused like a laser beam on the homeless issue. Uh, I mean, it, it was actually an amazing data point from our lunch, if I recall correctly. He and his assistant, who I was with at lunch, they knew, or at least they claimed to know, I mean, I haven't been able to verify this, obviously, but they claimed to know the exact number of homeless people in the city of Miami to the precise number. Now, again, that's the city of Miami, not the county. So, you know, Miami Beach and other places like that are excluded. But if I recall, the exact number was 510. And again, don't ask me how they know this, but... For a city of Miami size, really not that big. I mean, like you, you, and to be clear, like you kind of feel that. I mean, like I'm not gonna say you don't see homeless people here. Obviously, you do. But I'll, I'll report back after my trip to San Francisco next week. I mean, I'm I'm expecting to be kind of just inundated. Even the last time I was in San Francisco, I mean, 11 years ago, I remember um, at the time I was younger. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. This homeless guy almost kind of duped me into like walking to the ATM with him. I mean, I got out of it, but it could have been very poor, obviously, if it ended. I was pretty naive at the time in retrospect, obviously. Thank goodness nothing particularly bad happened. But the kind of the great migration, if you look at kind of 
the 2020 census and kind of which states are kind of gaining seats, which states are losing seats. Well, states like California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois are losing seats in the census. Texas gained two seats. Florida gained a seat. And the reasons for this, guys, it's not rocket science, okay? If you have a lower cost of living, if you make it so that you're not going to get taxed and regulated like crazy, if you're not going to get driven out, if your small businesses is not going to be had ridiculous red tape, obviously the COVID issue is a is a massive issue here. The governor here in, in my state in Florida, Ron DeSantis, talks over and over again, of course, about all the people that are flocking here in no small part due to, due to COVID sanity. Admittedly, Democrats seem to start, finally starting to be kind of giving up that issue and running away from their previous hysteria on that. But if you combine all that, obviously, with, of course, the warmer weather, which doesn't hurt anyone, and, it, and it's no surprise why I think people are fleeing a lot of these Democrat-run cities. The upshot here and kind of the biggest point to take away from this is that when you have kind of open migration, whether that's open migration internationally, that's obviously immigration, or kind of migration from state to state, when you kind of just encourage people to move for purely, for purely economic kind of bottom line financial reasons, you ultimately do risk losing a sense of place and a sense of culture here. So the same way that kind of historically speaking, we have welcomed kind of immigrants to the United States, but we've kind of welcomed them with the caveat that they assimilate into American culture. I think it's pretty reasonable for folks like us here in Miami to expect that our migrants from kind of the West Coast, for example, kind of assimilate into our local culture and our customs and our way of life. And, you know, hopefully from a personal perspective, hopefully that means not bringing with them their left-wing voting habits and all of that as well. But we're out of time for today. Thank you again for tuning in. We will see you next time. I'm Josh Hammer. Thanks for listening in.